Welcome to Restart Radio, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because unlike most, we do not focus on the new shiny, shiny things to buy. We focus on the value in the stuff we already have. The Restart project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronics. While we're not currently able to run our monthly repair events, our work with the London repair community is integral to this mission. My name is Ugo Vallauri from the Restart Project. I'm joined today by my colleague Janet Gunter and longtime restarter and friend of the show, Ben Skidmore. Welcome, everyone. But before we start with the show, some sad news, unfortunately. This week, we and the entire repair community were shocked and saddened to hear of the passing of John Wackman. For many years, John was at the forefront of establishing a repair community in the Hudson Valley in the United States. And his repair cafe in New Paltz was one of the first in the United States. He described himself as a coordinator, communicator and cheerleader for repair cafes across much of New York. And over the years, he supported the repair community all across the globe. We feel incredibly lucky that we were able to interview John and his co-author, Elizabeth Knight, in November of last year for Restart Radio. Their book, Repair Revolution, and the way that we, he spoke about his work is a testament to just how dedicated John was and how much he believed in the movement and those in it. John told us that repair is about our communities and about our planet, that it is more than just an opportunity to fix broken things. It's also an opportunity to fix broken systems and relationships. And we were struck by his very inclusive approach to repair. The impact that he leaves on the repair community is evidence of how truly he believed in this message. Today we're talking about a massive push to get laptops into the hands of kids at home during lockdown and some recently policy news from Europe. But first, uh, laptop reuse and the digital inclusion. Uh, this is really a hot topic. It's been since last week when the lockdown started, the third lockdown. And Janet, you've been following this and having lots of calls with people trying to sort things out. What would you like to tell us? People in the UK will remember last year when access to meals, school meals, became a huge issue. Um, when footballer Marcus Rashford drew attention to the fact that kids during school holidays were going to actually be hungry. And that he, it was a huge media groundswell on the issue of access to food. and. Um, for the poorest families in the UK. And a similar groundswell has happened now that we've gone back into lockdown and the government hasn't come through with its promises to provide laptops for, uh, for students in primary and secondary schools. Um, and we're seeing again a huge divide and people going without. Um, the difference between, uh, I suppose, meal access to food and meals and laptops is that in what relates to food, there was a, a, a fairly thriving network of food banks and organizations that could be called on immediately to provide uh, food. Uh, whereas 
In terms of like reuse and access to reused laptops or new laptops or any kind of hardware, there's not so much coordination. Um, and so last year there were a couple initiatives that came up, partly encouraged by government, that never really got fully funded, never really got fully off the ground. And when, when this groundswell happened this week, everyone was looking to, you know, who's going to help? If the Department for Education hasn't solved the problem, who's going to help? And um, the media started rightly asking, what about those millions of devices that are in our cupboards, our garages, um, in our closets, that are sitting dormant, that are actually still okay? And that there was a huge response from people who were um, watching on television or listening on radio or um, online. And we've had more visits to our list of community-based reuse initiatives in recent days than the whole of last year. It's, it's been slightly overwhelming. But I guess one of, the other, one of the other questions here in all of this is, you know, which model should take priority? you know, reusing the equipment that's not being used and that might end up in a shredder or, you know, this kind of mass procurement model that's kind of top down. And that's kind of the tension that we're seeing play out both in the media, but also just among our kind of charity and tech sector friends. So it's a big question. Yeah. And I think it's a big question and possibly it's a false dichotomy, I believe, that in the sense that the need is so big and it's so not going to be sorted in the next few weeks anyway, that um, there is no reason to say that one is better than the other. But certainly we shouldn't focus just on procuring uh, laptops, or cheap laptops, worrying again, super cheap tablets, um, when there's a lot of existing things that are sitting there and maybe many companies are also rethinking their own way of organizing and maybe they have a lot of infrastructure that might never be used again. You know, as somebody who pr we, we promote, you know, community cohesion and waste prevention at a community level. So we obviously have an interest in promoting a certain model. It is true, though, and Ben, you can testify to this, that you take 50 laptops that have been donated by individuals that are all different and have all had different life cycles and compare that with 50 machines that have been decommissioned by a company, let's say, and, you know, or, or even 50 machines that have been procured new. Those are completely different scenarios in terms of the timeline, in terms of the, the effort that needs to go in. Yeah, completely. I mean, you know, um, and, and this is why it's the same for companies deploying their own machines. Deploying at scale is like a production line. You can say we need 50 or 100 or 113, any number. And it's just, you know, you just do that many. Whereas um, handling each individual device to not just get it ready for use, but also to make it safe to pass on from the previous owner to clear data to make sure it works. Um, it's a, a very hands-on job. It's, it's a people hours job. But we know that there are people like yourself and the people across the UK who are actually, um, in a way, itching to use those skills and to help people. And um, one of the other cool things that happens in that environment is that skills are shared. So, you know, people learn as they're refurbishing devices and as they're helping others. Also, there's the, the whole point of why we started a few months ago listing all this community project was actually that we think that all over the UK, not just specifically here in London, there's communities of people that at the moment are very frustrated. They can't run community repair events, but they can use their skills. And it just makes sense to link up 
the efforts of digital inclusion with the efforts of community repair, which have been kind of two separate sort of silos until now. And uh, it just makes a lot more sense that if you are um, in a village in the north of England, you can donate to a project that's nearby and also make sure that the skills are amplified locally as opposed to trying to see a solution elsewhere. Yeah, but as you say, Ugo, the needs are really great. And I've just been hearing from educators and um, that essentially that this problem is so far from being solved that they're willing to basically take any, you know, any workable solution, just more devices, they need them, you know, and so I think um, perhaps what we should be pushing for is responsible recruit uh, procurement of new and and alongside that a push to get these millions of devices refurbished and in the hands of kids. I mean, I also think that the refurbishment and the push to get these devices out of people's houses in and of itself is a really important moment, like a learning, a teachable moment in a way for the people that have held on to them. And you know, I myself am guilty of this. Like last year, we pulled an old laptop out of the cupboard and we posted it to one of these organizations that does this. And all it really needed was, I believe, a new keyboard, which maybe would cost about 10 pounds, 15 pounds, and potentially a new um, solid state drive, which costs a little bit more, but then you've got a fully functioning, really good laptop. Um, and you know, I was a bit ashamed when I saw that we actually had one of those in the cupboard. And what was it doing there? I'm guilty of the same. And you know, like I have a machine that I know it can't be reused in the sense of reselling it. It doesn't prevent someone from using it if they actually need one. So it's it's important to avoid this. And I guess one of the criticisms that we have is that there's still this huge push for improving our recycling. At this moment, we see campaigns that right now are pushing for that, uh, while they could use this moment to actually promote reuse, which is a lot more urgent right, right now in 2021. Yeah, and I guess in terms of critiques, um, Ben, you came with us to an event where we were awarded a sustainability award. I think it was back five years ago in Parliament. And we met organizations there that we honestly, we hadn't really been in contact with. But I do remember at the time feeling a certain amount of disquiet with what is considered digital inclusion, which is I felt that it's very much like, you know, ending in getting someone a device, getting them on the internet and, you know, kind of making sure they know how to send an email or open a browser. And for us, I guess digital inclusion digital inclusion should be really much more about empowerment and, and, a, and a critical take on what the internet is, what technology affords us. Yeah, I feel there may be a disconnect between the people who are um, discussing all these things, making policy, uh, and then, you know, there's kind of a whole graded set of other people in the middle, like organisations like ours and, and tons of others, and then the people who are really not being reached. And so what those people need or what they'll benefit from may not be exactly what the policy is, is pointing out. As you say, it's not just getting a device in their house and an internet connection. It's making that of value to them and but also putting them in control, as you say. Um, what's really cool compared to five years ago is now digital inclusion has come to the foreground in the sense that if you don't get online, you might not see your grandchildren. 
if you don't get online you might not talk to your relatives you know so it, it's a good time to start talking about it again yeah and i guess for me also with the question of you know uh computers and especially is it's not the the question is not over once we get computers in the hands of all students because teachers are not necessarily equipped to teach students to engage with technology critically and to understand you know the the dangers the challenges the advantages of of being online of using technology um, so it reminds me of, of a quote that we really love to share from a Brazilian academic who wrote this, um, wow, a long time ago, 2003. Um, his name is Andre Lemos, and he, he's um, yeah, still based in Brazil. But this quote from so long ago seems to still really ring true. He says, can we really measure social inclusion by the number of computers per capita, by the number of internet users and other like statistics? Again, including means here adapting, molding, and forming individuals able to use software and operating systems that can be out of date only in a few months. Perhaps the true social inclusion is through educating on the new media, not just the techniques, but through the development of critical thought and disquiet in relation to that which they sell us as the newest, best thing, that which will just rot in front of us. And, you know, I, I feel that because, you know, if we're giving out tablets that are literally going to rot in our hands, you know, in nine months, what have we actually achieved there? So <laughs> I don't think we're going to sort this question out today, but it does seem that we need to inject some critique into this whole question of hardware in people's hands. For, for you and I, Janet, this is particularly moving because at the end of the day we're seeing now transported back into the uk some of the same dilemma that we were seeing when we were working in international development and we were somewhat part of this ict for development movement where there were these pushes to try to solve the problem parachuting new technology onto communities that weren't necessarily needing like x devices per class, right? Yeah, although as Ben points out, the, we're, we've got a next level of urgency and now it really is needed. But what's needed is a critical take on it and for people to appropriate and use it in their, you know, for their own needs. Definitely. And I mean, one thing that rings true, particularly to me, as I, you know, I have a child who's doing some remote year one schooling and and he you know everyone has to learn all of this and no one is really prepared it's just a whole new world so now that every school has to do this with zero warning it's just crazy yeah so yeah it just uh, hardware in the hands of people that's just the beginning <laughs> Definitely. But it, it, I find it also moving this issue of the data poverty. That's actually something that for some of us, we don't really think about it. You know, we talk about how, how many extra gigabytes I can get for one or two more pounds on my phone. But when we received a call from uh, school as parents uh, and saying, so do you have access to Wi-Fi? Because not everyone does. Many more people that is understood actually don't and are using just some extra data on their device and the moment they actually need more they don't have a landline anymore they can't afford it yeah i read a statistic that it's a uh, 20 of families that are that are using mobile data and basically yeah it's causing them huge economic stress and then um something like five percent of families say that they're having to actually forego 
food and other necessities to for data. So in, in this country, in the UK. You are listening to Restart Radio on Resonance 104.4 FM. Moving on, I guess we should discuss some of the things that, uh, that, that are coming up in Europe. It seems so funny for us to be discussing developments in Europe when we've just um, been through a fairly traumatic Brexit period. <laughs> But shall we talk about what's coming in the pipeline from Europe and what we if we were to remain aligned, what we stand to gain. <laughs> yes, so one of the most promising things that are actually moving forward is the promise or the prospect of a regulation for smartphones, uh, which would be a really big milestone at the European level. Uh, one that, again, we don't know if the UK would follow, but it's more likely than not that they won't be able to ignore it. And we were, as part of the European Right to Repair campaign, we were in a long meeting just before Christmas looking at um, draft papers for this preparatory study. And there's some good news there, um, meaning that the researchers in charge of this study have highlighted some of the key issues that could extend um, the lifespan of existing devices. And it's good that these are finally being put under EU regulation lights. And uh, so there is some promise there, including not just access to repair manuals, uh, spare parts, and also um, the problems linked to the failing of repair uh, software updates uh, that actually are one of the key reasons that people stop using devices. So it's good that we're seeing progress there, but it's still in development and uh, it's still a long way from turning into law. So, Yeah, it seems that there's everything to play for, and yet I don't really trust necessarily the ambition that will come out of the process. So I think it's going to be I really do think we're up for a big, uh, a big fight with industry. Um, also, there was a huge report that came out about the amount of money that big tech is pouring into Brussels and the New York Times. It's unprecedented, the amount of uh, lobby and cash money that they're pouring in over the past year. And most of it's probably related to regulation of the internet, but we also know that they have an interest in preventing regulation of their devices. Um, Another interesting thing that caught my eye, Ugo, about software obsolescence was seeing that Qualcomm, so one of the biggest chip makers in the world, and kind of the excuse for a lot of manufacturers that ship Android devices, their excuse is always, well, if Qualcomm doesn't support their chips for longer, we can't support the hardware for longer. And Qualcomm has come forward and made a commitment to Um, provide software updates for their firmware updates for their chips for three years. So in a way, they're taking away the excuses already for the manufacturers. And I wonder to which point the European regulation can push things further. And I hope they can, because three years is still feels pretty meager. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's certainly positive. Um like that they're actually going on record on that. Uh, but it's also interesting because manufacturers 
uh, Qualcomm and other chipset manufacturers are not the target for the regulation. It's, it's, um, it's a positive development. Someone commenting on our community site was saying that maybe this is a sign that Qualcomm is really feeling that it's losing out to say Apple and others are developing their own chipsets. And so it's a, an attempt to kind of ca play catch up. So let's see what happens. Yeah, but ultimately, like it, it's it seems crazy to me that we're that uh, you know at a obscure company for most end users um, that most no one's going to go and bang on their door about this issue. But even they are kind of pushing things forward, um, and so I, <laughs> I, I it just kind of for me it raises questions about what's going to come out of this European process. It's like, you know. We, we need to take, we need to look at that and say, okay, government needs to be much more ambitious than what these people are proposing. And what about on the other issues, Ugo? So um, on design for repair and, and access to information, repair information, what are some of the big battles that might arise there? It, it seems that, I mean, there is fair, um, fairly everyone on board in terms of the studies, they all kind of say the same things, that there isn't really any big, huge cost in making these products more easy to disassemble and, and to repair. And so it's just a matter of making it the default. I mean, to me, this is what's, what's quite um, exciting, that there isn't very much of a, of a trade-off. The moment you just make something compulsory and they just have to do it. And it's, it's also showing that there isn't like much of a, um, anything to, to, to lose for, for them. I mean, they can do it. It's not even going to cost them very much. What's, like, what's interesting is that this report also highlights that in order to extend software support for a device for up to five years, it will probably cost large manufacturers something like two euros per device at scale. So of course they're going to argue that that's too much and that makes their products less competitive. And I've heard that in that very meeting. These are companies that are sitting on like epic piles of cash and underpaying workers. And currently they might be selling their flagship devices for 899 pounds or something like that. Okay, making it 901 and supported for twice as long. I don't think people will balk at that. Right. Okay. And um, in other news, there was a really interesting report that came out of a German consumer organization. So uh, VZBZV, sorry, it's not easy in English. Um, created a report that finally quantified the impact of longer lasting devices and repair at scale and for the average person. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of euros in the pocket of the average person if we make, uh, which were devices we're really looking at, TVs, smartphones, washing machines, and notebooks all last longer. Um, and they were able to, interestingly, they were able to show that in some device categories, there's a big carbon savings and a big monetary savings. And in others, there's just a massive carbon savings. But either way, you look at it, um, this report is pretty influential. They, they reported that the four product groups would save a potential 3.93 3 million tons of carbon emissions annually if they, were, if they had their lives extended. And that corresponds to the output of 1.85 million cars. And that uh, consumers would save 
billion euros per year if devices would last longer. One example, like looking at smartphones, they, they looked at how normally they tend to last 2.5 years, while they very well could last seven years. And if that was the case, everyone would save about 242 euro over the life cycle of, of this. So let's say 220 pounds, which, you know, multiply that for the 210 million devices that are sold across Europe every year. That's a lot of money. It reminds me, you know, like, you know, the, the, the Brexit or the anti-Europe people are always banging on about eco-efficiency, right? It's like their worst nightmare, those labels that we have on all of our appliances about eco-efficiency. But ultimately, they really cannot refute the, the savings that that made for people. Like, even if you don't even care about the environment, like the people across Europe say have saved hundreds and hundreds of euros um, individually because of these measures. Um, and it seems to me that I hope that we get to the same point in future where we don't just calculate uh, hypothetically, we actually all have saved this money and saved this carbon. Did you have any reaction to that data, Ben? It was really interesting to me because um, at first I read it and I just thought, yeah, we knew that. And, and then I realized that's what's happening. We've been banging the drum for a long time and common sense has ruled out and now we're backed up with data so it's quite affirming that we're on the right path and uh you know people are listening and we're going to start having as you say it's going to go from theoretical to real savings and it's also good that it's coming from germany which is you know a really influential country within europe and we're seeing an increasing um an increasing adoption of right to repair agenda in germany domestically um, which is really encouraging and we're really cheered by. Um, moving to another big European power, um, there was really big news that came out of France um, on January 1st. Hugo, do you want to tell us about it? Yeah, so as of January 1st, uh, the long-discussed um, first-ever repairability index score uh, comes to France, uh, and uh, that means that from now, consumers in France will see both online and in stores if and when they'll be able to go back to stores that's to say um, like a, a, a repairability score when they buy products of five initial categories um, including smartphones laptops uh, lawnmowers somehow and uh, washing machines and televisions and um, what's important is that it's the first time ever that repairability is taken into account there won't be any fine for the first year as everyone gets used to, to this. There's a lot of fear that um, the fact that manufacturers are able to use the criteria to come up to their own um, score for their products without having to be checked by a third party before they become public. That could be leading to abuse of the system potentially. We've seen some worrying um, speculations on that based on scores of Apple products, but we're waiting to hear more. In any case, it's, it's positive that this is a starting point and hopefully it will be improved when adopted across other European countries. 
And yeah, the rating criteria includes, you know, basically all of the pillars of the right to repair campaign, which is, you know, access to repair information for the average person, um, availability and pricing of spare parts, and uh, yeah, is the device uh, is the device designed for repair and disassembly? Um, there are some yeah some real questions looming over this, and it it does seem important that they get it right. We know that Europe is working on something similar. Um, and we know also that DEFRA here in the UK is intrigued by it and quite interested. So we'd, we'd really like to see um, if, if there are problems that they get ironed out. Um, but we, what we don't want to see is that for this to kind of be a half-hearted effort. Ben, what would you make of it if in the next time you're buying something online, you see a repairability score? Would you, would you nerd out and learn all about the score? <laughs> It's pretty much what I was going to say is the current energy efficiency ones, I love to see those, especially now we're in the land of like all TVs are either A or A++ or A++++ because they have to compare to previous products. And so I love looking at it and going, why has this one got two pluses? So that's really cool. Um, but, but to comment on the kind of like, is it going to hit stores? Are there going to be especially um, misleading ones? I think that's fine because we will get consumers used to looking at them and factoring it in. And if there is a clever marketing spin where someone gets a rating better than they really deserve, that's fine because we can fix that with time, but the consumer will be empowered to at least be looking at the information and questioning it. So we, it's, it's a bit like recycling 10 years ago, 20 years ago, not everything actually reached a recycling dump. It would often just be thrown in landfill and people got very angry, but they were still building the habits of separating out their rubbish. So it's it's all about taking those steps and it goes down to the grassroots. Everyone has to be looking at these labels in the first place to be useful. Um, you've been listening to Restart Radio on Resonance 104.4 FM. To, due to the pandemic, we're currently not running our in-person restart parties. We do have a few online events coming up, and you can find details on those on our website. However, if you'd like help fixing anything with a plug or a battery, just tag us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and you can find us on our website, therestartproject.org. Thanks to Optinoise and Cassini Sound for our music, which was made with lasers, spinning plastic discs, and discard electronics. We're here every second Tuesday of the month at 5 p.m. Until next time.